I found out that this week was a very special week within the Lincoln Way schools. And this, this was the week where seniors declared what college they will be going to. Those of, who are going off to college will come in wearing uh, a sweatshirt or a t-shirt for the schools that they're going to be going to. And it was an exciting day. Even the teachers wore certain clothes. So, you know, if you're going to University of Iowa, you wear an Iowa Hawkeye uh, uh, sweatshirt of some sort. Every year, the U.S. News and World Report comes out with a list of all the nation's top colleges and universities. You can go online and read all the reviews and all the rankings and find out if your kid is going to one of the best colleges in the world. Parents scour these pages. They, they go over them and just hoping that their child would, would go to, maybe be accepted into one of these prestigious schools so that their child can, you know, achieve the elusive American dream. For 2019, the University of Chicago ranked number five. And Northwestern University ranked number 11 in the nation. So, you know, right even in our backyard, we have some very prestigious schools. But also, every, every year, other publications come out uh, with their own reviews of universities based on very, very, very different standards. There's even a list of the top party schools in the nation. And if you're wondering which of the Midwest schools have made the list, here you go. Number eight, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Sadly, they have dropped, or maybe thankfully they have dropped. Back in 2016, they were number one in the nation. Uh, University of Illinois is uh, number 17, or Indiana University is number seven, and the University of Iowa, Lindsay, who is a graduate, uh, is now number 11. So here's how it works. Here's how it works. Before a, a student goes off to school, they often feel they are not free. I am, I am caged. I live at home. You, and they would call these things rules, mom and dad's rules. It doesn't matter how old you are even. It, it, you don't even have to be a kid. Anytime you go back home to mom and dad's house, all of a sudden you find yourself living with mom and dad's rules. You want to come here? You want to live here? This is how it is. You're in by this time. You're out by this time. You get a job. You pay rent. You do this. You do that. There are certain conditions and rules that are enforced by these, these people called parents. But one day you pack up the car and you arrive at the university or college and you finally breathe in deeply that fresh air of freedom. Freedom. There is nobody to tell you to go to bed anymore. You can decide when you're going to get up. You can decide if you are going to eat Cool Ranch Doritos for breakfast and eat that all day long. It does not matter. You are now your own boss. You can decide how many classes you want to attend, and you can decide how many of those classes you want to skip. All the rules and all the restrictions that were placed on you as a minor are now no longer in place. You now have freedom. The question, though, is how do you use your freedom? Do you 
use the freedom to party and just have a great time? Or do you use the freedom to pursue the best education possible? Or do you fall somewhere in the middle? Freedom from rules is only one side of the picture, right? You have to ask yourself not just what you're free from, but what you're free to do on the other side of that freedom. So this morning, that's exactly the issue that we are going to be looking at. It's not just an issue for university students who are going off and discovering freedom. It's an issue for every single person here as well. What do we do with this freedom that we have in Christ? So my friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Starting at verse 13 of chapter 5. Hear God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another but i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all these and all like things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So ever since January, we, we've been in this, this series, uh, walking through the book of Galatians. Somebody has called it the Magna Carta of the Christian life. It, it, and in this Magna Carta, this great book, this great writing by Paul, it says, listen, here's the reality. You are free. You have been set free. In other words, we are no longer obligated to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. 
We are set free from keeping the law as a means of salvation. We do not have to add anything to what Jesus has done for us in order to be accepted by God. Jesus has paid it all. He paid the entire price. But there's a problem. And I know that some of you have seen this problem because some of you have have sent me Facebook messages and emails about this. The problem is, if we do not have to obey in order to be accepted by God, does that mean that we can live however we want? There were questions last week of application. So what does this mean? If, If it's Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance by God, then what's, us to, what's there to stop us from living a life of debauchery, of drunkenness, of evil? If we don't have to keep the law to be accepted by God, what's, what's now the, the thing that stops us? If we're not under the law, what should guide our conduct? Your family rules? Tradition? Guilt? Shame? What, what, what now guides us in our Christian life? And that's the question I'm going to try to answer this morning from this passage. And I want to show you three things. And since we don't have the, uh, we, we have a first world problem here this morning, we don't have the slides up here, you're going to have to listen a little bit more carefully and I'll speak a little bit more slowly. But here's the three things that I want to show you from this passage. The first is I want to show you what true freedom isn't. That's the first thing. What true free freedom isn't. Then I'm going to show you what true freedom is. And then so what? What do we do with that? So first, let's look at what true freedom isn't. In 2013, Newsweek uh, shared a story about a man named Ali. He was an Iraqi. He had... Uh, he was a man, young man with little money and no wife. And this was all the ascent, incentive that he needed to take a 90-minute bus ride from his village to Baghdad. As soon as he arrives, the, this 21-year-old Iraqi headed straight to Abu Abdallah's place. There at Abu Abdallah's, it cost him only $1.50 for 15 minutes alone with a woman. The room is basically a cell with a curtain for a door. And Ali complains that Abdu Abdallah's women should bathe more. But Ali sees, sees the easy and inexpensive access as an improvement over the days when Saddam Hussein was, was in power. The dictator controlled vices such as prostitution, alcohol, drugs, and the fall of the regime gave rise to every kind of deprav- depravity. Depravity? Depravity, thank you, that word. In, in addition to brothels, Iraqis had a choice, a, a, now a huge choice of adult cinemas where 70 cents buys an all-day ticket, and the audience would hoot in protest if, the non, if a non-pornographic trailer would 
interrupt the action. And referring to their newly available immoral activities, Ali grins and says, now we have freedom. And some people, when they're they're reading Galatians, think this is what it's all about. We're not under the law, a regime, a dictatorship anymore. So we have freedom to do whatever we want to do. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? So Paul knows this is what some of them are thinking. So he says in this passage, and he makes it very clear, he says this in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom for an opportun- as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love, this is what you were supposed to do. You are to serve one another. And then in verses 19 through to 21, he makes it even clearer. This is what freedom is not about. He writes, listen, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, on and on and on and on. He gives this whole list of things. And, and he says, this is what the flesh is about. And I'm going to warn you, and as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I think it's helpful for us to kind of create three, if you're a note taker, kind of create three columns. The first column is this, in the category of what it's not about. The first one is saying the Christian life is not about keeping the law. And some of you, you're going to go, oh, hold on a second. But God gave us the whole Bible, right? The Christian life is not about keeping the law. It's not about keeping, your Christian life is not about keeping a a list of a series of rules. Why not? Well, we've we've looked at it. Paul, Paul said back in Galatians 2, verse 16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one is going to be justified by your ability to keep the law. Later on in Galatians 3, verse 10, he says, all who rely on the works of the law are still under a curse. And in verse 3 of this chapter, he's saying that that keeping part of the law now obligates you to keep the whole law. So the Christian life is not about keeping the law. It doesn't work. Nobody is good enough. It's a losing proposition. The message of the Bible isn't that you should be good and God will accept you. That's an unbiblical view of salvation that is even from the pit of hell. But we need a second column here. So the first column is, man, I, I should not, it's, it's, Christian life is not about rule keeping. It's not about keeping the law. The second column is this, one of license. License means living any way that I please. The Oxford Diction, English Dictionary describes it as a liberty of action, especially when excessive. Disregard of law or, or propriety. Abuse of freedom. License is a freedom 
without responsibility. Freedom without responsibility. It's trusting in God's grace and then living however you want to live. But my friends, that is not the Christian life either. D.A. Carson, a uh, professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, used to meet with a young man from uh, French West Africa so that uh, Dr. Carson could practice his, his German. And sometimes after enough practice, uh, they they would go out and just have a meal together, share a meal. Dr. Carson learned that this man had a wife in London training to be a medical doctor. And while while he, this man, stayed in Germany to learn the language, he also learned that once or twice a week, this man disappeared into the red light district of town to pay money for this woman. Eventually, he got to know this man well enough that he asked him what he would do if he discovered that his wife was doing something similar in London. This man's response? (laughs) Oh, I'd kill her. And Dr. Carson challenged him and said, That's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? If you know Dr. Carson, he's from Canada, and he kind of talks like this all the time. It's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? He asked, you you told me that you were raised in a mission school. You know the God of the Bible does not have double standards like this. The man gave Carson a bright smile and responded, Ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Or as someone else said, God is a great forgiver. I'm a great sinner. What a great combination. Isn't that sometimes how we live? That's not what Paul's talking about here. Notice what he says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh flesh does not mean this right here your your body your your uh your red blood cells pumping through this this thing called a body that is not the flesh he's talking about the flesh means your your fallen sinful nature do not use the freedom your freedom from the law as an excuse to live any way you want to, to indulge in your sinful nature, Paul is saying. Don't do that. And then he makes it clear that what he's talking about in verses 19 to 21, he gives a whole list of of vices here. And as a parent, you're kind of going, oh, am I going to have to talk about this after church? He goes, man, there, there are some pretty big, nasty kind of things. There's some pretty sensual kind of things. Some of them are, are big issue, kind of big ticket behaviors that we would go, oh no, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. A lot of people probably here could even sit back and pat yourself on the back and say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. It's been a long time since this has happened in my life, or this has never happened in my life, way to go, Paul. Way to go. You're not feeling guilty about these things. But then Paul gets to what some people call respectable sins. 
sins that don't look so bad, sins that we might even tolerate or put up with, sins like anger, rivalries, dissensions, division. Many churches will not put up with orgies, but they may put up with anger and division. And Paul puts them all on the same list. And then he says, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You read that and you go, hold on a second. I, I thought it was Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance with God. Now you're telling me that if you trust in Jesus and do these things, you're out? And Paul says, yes, you are out. Why? Because good works are not the basis for our acceptance with God, but they are the result of it. Good works are not the basis for our acceptance, but they are the fruit, the result of it. And if Jesus truly lives in our lives, he will transform us so this list does not characterize us. As someone has said, God accepts us the way that we are, but he does not leave us there. And if this list characterizes your life, it's a sign that you really have not experienced the grace of God in your life. You see, true freedom doesn't mean that we live however we want to live. That's not what true freedom is. That isn't true freedom at all. In fact, in, Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you use your freedom from the law as an opportunity to sin, you've just entered into a whole different kind of slavery. You're no longer a slave to the law. You're now a slave to your sin. So these two lists, by the way, are two ways that we can be lost as well. One is the religious way. You can be lost as a religious person. To live, listen, I, I'm accepted before God because of the way that I live, because of the rules and my law keeping. Look at how good I am. I'm pompous. You should notice how good I am. This is not what it means to be a Christian. It's dangerous because it looks like you're good, but in reality, you smell from the inside out. The other way to be lost is it to totally indulge in your sinful nature and to do whatever you want to do. Paul says that neither of these is what he's talking about. Neither one is really true freedom. Both are a form of, a sla of slavery. True freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. And, but that's what our culture says. You're free to be you. But according to Scripture, that is not what true freedom is. So now let's look at the second major point of what true freedom really is. So if true freedom isn't about indulging your sinful nature and doing whatever you want to, what is it? 
verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your, your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So later on, Paul gives, gives us a description of the type of things that we should notice in the lives of those who are held together by the Spirit's power in true freedom. He writes in verses 22 to 23, and I, I said to Zach, part of me thinks that many people would say, give me a whole sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. But this is really a section, one kind of, it, it is a fruit, it is a thing, a thing that is manifested. And he says, listen, this is what you should look like if you are possessed by the Holy Spirit and living within true freedom. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, you can be lavish in these things. So what is true freedom? Freedom, true freedom, true gospel freedom is not about satisfying our selfish desires. True gospel freedom, which is really our third category in your list, true gospel freedom expresses itself in serving and loving through the Spirit. Listen, every ministry, every man, woman, and child who calls themselves a follower of Christ, your life should be marked with service. Your lives should be marked with loving through the Spirit. We, we should be known corporately as a community by our service to one another, and to a lost and broken world. We should be marked as a community of how we love one another and also how we love them. So we have these, these three columns. One is the law, the one is license, and the third one is true gospel freedom. And let me talk a little bit about this true gospel freedom. First of all, this true gospel freedom begins in the heart. It's inside out. It works its way from the inside out. Paul talks about love. He says that it is the fulfillment of the whole law. In a sense, every command is basically a version of this command. You want to love your neighbor? Don't kill him. Don't steal his wife. Don't lie to him. Every command is really about loving your neighbor. But you can keep all the commands and still not really love your neighbor from the heart. That's why the law isn't enough. That's why we need the gospel. The gospel gives us a new heart. It tr takes out the old heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh so that the change comes from the inside out. We're free from the law as an outward observance. So now we end up with a love that springs from our heart 
from the inside out. We're no longer obligated to do these things because of an outward command. Now God has planted it in our hearts, and there's an inner desire to do this, and the gospel fuels it. It begins in our heart. But secondly, we have got to notice that it is a work of the Spirit. Notice the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Notice that it's called the fruit, not of the disciple, but it's fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces in our life as we yield to the Holy Spirit. True freedom is experiencing the Spirit's power as we are transformed from the inside out. The only way to receive the fruit of the Spirit is to stay close to the Spirit and to trust that He is going to give us more and more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we depend more and more and more on Him. And my friends, this is true Christian freedom. It's not about indulging our our sinful nature. True freedom expresses itself in serving and loving through the Spirit and not in gratifying your, your desires. The law, you see, the law in this way becomes good and not our enemy. It becomes good when we're transformed by the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. And I love this phrase. The law is under a Christian for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. Do you see the difference? (laughs) Nor the spirit that accentuates us. The law is good. And is excellent if keeps us, if it keeps its place. In other words, the law never goes above us to whack us on the head. But it's the thing that helps us guide our Christian life. So let's look at verse 1 again. We're not under the law, right? Or first point, we're not under the law. Secondly, we're we're not free to indulge our sinful nature. Instead, we are free, free to love and to be changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. So to put it differently, we don't obey God in order to be accepted, but we do obey as a result of being accepted. Having been accepted, we give God our all. As the song, favorite hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my 
all. So what do we do with this? Okay. This is the so what. What do we do with this? It's a nice theory. It's a great idea, and it can be really lofty. But what do we do with these, these things? First, keep the gospel centered, central. Remember, Paul's point is that we truly, we, that we truly change as we encounter the gospel. Every day, as you are encountering the gospel, you are to be changed more and more and more, and you are going to look more and more like Christ Jesus. But that requires you as a baby Christian to a maturing Christian to keep the gospel center in your life. You should never tire of the gospel. You should rely more and more on the gospel. So stand firm in your freedom. That is yours in Christ. Do not move from that. That is your basis for justification, but it is also your foundation for growth in holiness. Dwell there. Keep returning to what Christ has done for you. Keep going back to that well. The, the water is sweet and it is good and it nourishes your soul. It strengthens you. The more you believe in the gospel, my friends, the more empowered you will be to kill sin in your life, to live a joy-filled, satisfied life in whatever Christ sends your way. It helps you trust more because you know why? Because you know that he is better and he is stronger than whatever is thrown your way. Trust in this gospel. Keep it central to your life. But secondly, Paul tells us in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Here's what this means. You, my friends, have been crucified with Christ. You've been what? Crucified. You've been crucified with Christ. And when this happened, when you trusted Christ and all the works, when you rested upon him as he is presented to us in the gospel, you've rested upon him and his works, your sinful nature was dealt a fatal blow. And that is good news. Your sinful desires may still be there, but they are mortally wounded. That's a change of mind or a change of paradigm. Because so often we think, no, my sin is winning the day. No, it hasn't. Your, your sin has been dealt a mortally fatal blow at the cross. It no longer has power over you. They no longer rule. They no longer reign over you. So remember, they've been dealt a fatal blow. Consider your sinful desires, your sinful passions, your flesh. Consider it dead. And my friends, do not administer first aid. Because sometimes we go back and feel sorry for, oh, I'm just really weak or... Uh, don't put your sinful nature on life support. Turn it off. Whatever sin you struggle with, and go back to that list that Paul gives, whatever sin that you may struggle with, remember, 
that all those sins were dealt a fatal blow at the cross. Remember that the good is dead and treat them that way. Do not give sin in your life, your past in your life, as shady as it may be. Give it no power. Give it no power because you know what? The cross is far more powerful than your story. The cross and Christ's work is far more powerful than your sinful nature. So finally, last thing for us to remember the the so what is found in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Have you ever watched the Lincoln Way marching band? Uh, watch them out on the field at, before a football game or watch them. You know, they just, 300 plus students and staff uh, spent hours and hours, thousands of hours of practice and then they went off to the Tournament of Roses this past year and now they are going to be, does anybody know where they're going next? They're going to Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You talk about a quick turnaround. But they, they will spend thousands of hours out on that field depriving themselves of water, nutrition, and free time, spending themselves out there engaging all their skills, all their minds, and coordinating each and every step so that when they orchestrate it, it is this amazing display. It is art at its best. They are in step together. And the amazing thing is, is that for me, I would want to pull back and go, okay, so where's my step? What do I look like right here? What should I be doing? Where is that person over there? No, they just say, do this. Take a half step this way and know exactly what. They do this whole amazing thing. And they they do it artfully. They do it soulfully. And they, they, they are doing it all the while, not just walking around. They are also playing instruments. That is amazing. And that is what Paul is saying to do here. Keep in step. Keep in step with the Spirit. Stay in formation. Depend totally upon Him and His instructions, His guidance for your life. Trust Him. Keep up with His commands. March side by side with others who are following Him as well. There's no such thing as a a marching band with just one person playing all the instruments. And if there is, it's weird. And it's not beautiful. So my friends, this is freedom. If you want freedom in playing the piano, what do you do? You practice. It's the only way... you can do it. It's just by sitting down at the piano for hours and hours. It's not by, oh, I'm, uh, I'm a, an amazing pianist and I, I will just play whatever I want and have never sat down at it and then discipline it. If you, want, if you want a fish to be free, don't break the aquarium and release the, the fish into to the, to the air so he can be free. It needs water to be free. And the same thing is true for Christians. Freedom does not mean absence 
from restrictions. It means the right kind of restrictions. It means that we are set free, my friends, to love through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and to be changed from the inside out. There's no law, no license, but only love through the Spirit. And that is true Christian freedom. True freedom doesn't mean indulging. It means being changed. Being changed through the Spirit's power. My friends, as we come to this table in a bit, remember, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And if you are finding yourself indulging in your flesh and the sinful desires and passions that arise, and you are refusing to submit yourself to the Lord, this meal isn't for you. But it is also at this table where we find grace and mercy as we are reminded visually of the gospel. Let's pray.